Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm A.F. Tanath, and today I'm covering Vampire Night Season 1, Episodes 4, 5, and 6. Right up front, I want to say how charming I'm finding this show. It's a special kind of nostalgia for me. I haven't seen this show before, yes, but it's just so perfectly encapsulating that mid-2000s teen and preteen culture, and it's just tugging at my heartstrings. It's a really adorable throwback to that era, and even as I can't help seeing how drippingly problematic this story is, I also can't help but kind of fall in love with it, because I truly can't distance myself from an intimate understanding of just how much I would have loved this story if I'd gotten to experience it while actually part of the target demographic. If I'd watched this show when it had come out, I would have internalized this story into an inherent building block of my personality, just the way I did with my other favorite media from my formative years. The Lion King and its direct-to-video sequel, Digimon Adventure and Digimon Adventure 02, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaolin Showdown, Harry Potter, Song of the Lioness, Del Toro Quest, Tokyo Mew Mew and its awful 4Kids dub, Supernatural. These stories were all varying degrees of beloved to me and helped shape me into the person I was as I entered adulthood, and if Vampire Knight had been among them, I dare say it would have been the crowning jewel of my vampire-obsessed and admittedly suicidally depressed preteen years. Twilight didn't really do it for me, but this shit is everything that I wanted Twilight to be. So let's get into this. Episode 4 is titled Trigger of Condemnation, and honestly I might stop mentioning the episode titles because they're mostly just word salad at this point, but this episode sees our story pick up right where it left off, in the aftermath of Zero biting Yuki's neck. Kaname senses this attack all the way across campus and abandons the headmaster with no explanation beyond I smell blood. He arrives quite quickly on the scene of Zero's attack, and he delivers an overdose of that condemnation from the title. He calls Zero a beast for losing control and taking so much blood from Yuki, who fears that Kaname intends to kill Zero and tries to protect him. But she's faint from blood loss and collapses, leaving Kaname to carry Yuki to the infirmary. Now, I wouldn't have picked up on it as a child, or worse, I would have picked up on it but misunderstood it as something romantic, but there is a vibe that's happening here when it comes to Kaname. His behavior toward Yuki, especially in this episode and the next two, is undeniably predatory, and I don't mean that in a vampiric way. I mean that he's predatory in the sense of an older man who's sexually pursuing a young or vulnerable girl or woman. He stays subtle about it, sure, but he gets increasingly manipulative as this chunk of episodes unfolds. He repeats and pretty deftly positions himself as Yuki's protector, her hero even, an undeniable good guy. And in doing so, he works to demonize her foster brother and his rival for her affections. He's very clearly trying to drive a wedge between her and a key member of her support system, which will have the fun side effect of making her more reliant upon him, a wonderful position of power for an abuser to be in, and one that all abusers seek to establish for themselves. There is a line somewhere in these first few episodes, I'm not quite sure exactly where it was, but it was Yuki saying, I think, that Konami isn't nice to anyone except for her. And that is the reddest of red flags. Abuse begins that way, all the time. He's mean and cruel and vicious, or even violent. But he makes you feel special because he doesn't treat you that way. You are special because you are an exception, and of course, in the long run, you will be able to change him. Except that's not true. You're not special. You're unique, certainly, but none of us are special. You're not the only person he treats kindly because there's something inherently different about you. He's treating you kindly because he wants something from you, and he knows that he can't attract a fly with vinegar. And unless you are a trained mental health professional who manages to cross his path in a professional capacity at exactly the right time for him to want to be changed, you will never ever change him. 
and you certainly can't change him while in a relationship with him. Sooner or later, a man who treats everyone awfully except for you is going to start treating you awfully too. It is an inevitability, and it's gonna fuck your head up. You're gonna wonder what's wrong with you, you're gonna wonder what you did wrong, and you're gonna blame yourself, which is exactly what he wants. Do not date, never ever date, a man who treats everyone awfully except for you. But back to the show. Kaname must return to his fellow students as the scent of Yuki's blood is agitating the rest of the vampires. Kayan apologizes to Yuki for having let this happen under his watch, and he explains the circumstances of Zero's turning to her. He clarifies for her that she will not, like Zero, become a vampire. Zero was bitten by a pureblood, and former humans like Zero cannot turn anyone into vampires themselves, which means that Yuki, for now at least, is safe. In the Moon Dormitory, though, Ido and Kane are discussing the blood they smelled on campus tonight. Ido knows that it was Yuki's, and I look forward to trying to nail down exactly what this dude's deal is. His behavior toward Yuki is so unhinged, swinging wildly back and forth between extremes, and I don't yet feel like I've got a good grasp on what exactly he's experiencing, emotionally speaking. I'm quite confident in my assertion that he has a crush on Kaname. I don't think there's really any denying that. But his behavior toward Yuki reads as a muddled mess of jealousy, bloodlust, and perhaps some degree of attraction to her himself, and it's this last that I can't quite get a handle on. He's clearly jealous of Kaname's interest in Yuki, and he clearly wants to drain her dry, but when he, for instance, asks her to dance in episode 6, what is that? An implicit threat, perhaps? An attempt at flexing the power dynamics between them? An attempt to get close to her in order to more closely orbit the true object of his affections? A bit of transference with his feelings for Kaname leading him to feel some degree of interest in the girl that Kaname's interested in? Or is he skirting into full, if I can't have him free of her, I guess I'll just go after both of them territory? All of these options have wonderful potential, and I really can't wait to find out which is closest to the truth. In the headmaster's office once again, Kaname and Kayan are having yet another conversation about Zero. Kaname wants Zero transferred to the night class, presumably with the primary goal of keeping him away from Yuki. But as Kayan says, that is an unprecedented move, and it's not like Zero is going to be welcome in the night class anyway. Most of the night class students hate him as much as he hates them, and so transferring him will make almost everyone unhappy especially Yuki. She gets the logic of Zero being part of the night class, sure, but she doesn't want to lose him like that. It's bad enough when he's too depressed for class the next day. Having him permanently removed from class would clearly devastate her, and so she skips out of the classroom to go beg Kaname to change his mind about Zero's transfer. But it's not Kaname who Yuki first finds in the moon dorm. Unfortunately for her, instead, it's Aido, who really does have this fascinating balance of pretending to be harmless while hiding how genuinely volatile, emotionally immature, and potentially lethal he is. As far as vampires go, I rather feel like of all the ones we've seen so far in this show, Ido would do by far the best. The pretty idiot thing that he's got going on is a wonderful lure. The others are all gorgeous, yeah, I get that, but they all give off a distinct vibe. They're very much far more obviously predatory than he is. They're detached, aloof, cold, aristocratic, threatening in their very aura. Kaname in particular, as I've said, seems to operate on the outskirts of the normal human world like a shark, just barely contained inside a convincing person suit. He could not more obviously be a predator in just about everything he does on screen. Ido, though. I realize I'm kind of overemphasizing how much I'm enjoying his character at this point, but this dude is just far and away the character with the most potential right now. He's pulling off goofy anime guy like 85% of the time. 
And then sometimes that persona just drops away to reveal how fucking unreasonable and threatening he is. And it doesn't even come across with the implication that the goofball persona is a put-on. He really does seem to be this kind of pathetic himbo character most of the time. Except that he's also perfectly willing to drain you dry the split second that he thinks you have crossed some bizarre, inexplicable, and pretty arbitrary line in terms of whether or not you're honoring his man crush enough. I don't know. It just tickles me, and I find him very amusing. That might change, sure, but that is where I'm at right now. Anyway, he at first seems to be taking Yuki to Kaname, and then asks about the bite marks on her neck, having snatched away her bandage without her noticing. And then Yuki gets this dreamy, love-struck look on her face at the mention of Kaname's name, and oh boy. Out come the silly ice powers and the threats. He's pissed, I guess, that this human girl is, I don't know, sullying his beloved Kaname's emotions or something like that, until the moment when he realizes that Kaname saved Yuki's life once upon a time. And to him, that explains it all. Or so I think he wants Yuki to think. Really, I'm probably just projecting at this point, but everything from that moment on strikes me as supremely disingenuous. He starts going on about how Kaname saving Yuki means that Yuki's blood essentially belongs to Kaname, and that someday Kaname will drink from her and potentially drain her ass dry. In fact, he counsels her to go ahead and get it over with, and Yuki is rightly horrified. But here's the thing, there is absolutely no way in hell that this dude is so detached from a proper understanding of the whole predator-prey relationship. There's no way that he's actually being genuine when he presents Yuki's potential death to her as a good thing for her. So here's my little headcanon of what's actually happening here. Ido is an issue. He's got this crush on Kaname, and he's hella jealous of Kaname and Yuki's relationship. That should be nothing more than a predator-prey relationship, but it's clearly not. And so he's trying to convince her that it is only that. But also, listen to the way he describes Kaname eating her. Again, he's not talking about eating her in the fun way, but the loving way in which he describes it is trying to dress the whole vampire's kiss thing as an even more fun option. What I'm getting at, then, is that this is a really tangled-up manifestation of the whole vampire caste system thing and Ido's desire to be rid of Yuki. He wants Kaname to eat her, sure, because then Kaname is free of her and potentially free for Ido's adoration. But he also is clearly getting off on imagining the experience of submitting to the whole murdered-by-a-pureblood vampire experience, while also kind of getting off on scaring the shit out of Yuki which probably helps to reinforce for him that she's not worthy of Kaname's investment in the first place, because surely if she was worthy, she wouldn't be scared of being placed into that submissive role he so clearly wants for himself. Or maybe I'm just seeing what I want to see here. I definitely think that the text supports that interpretation, but maybe I'm just out here writing fanfic in my head. If so, well, it's not like there's anything you can do to stop me. Anyway, Yuki is horribly offended by all of this and goes to slap Ido, but Kaname grabs her wrist to stop her. He certainly does seem to pop up all around this campus, doesn't he? Personally, this is the biggest indicator of his nefarious behavior for me. It's a huge coincidence that he's here just in time to stop Yuki from striking Ido. As far as I'm concerned, it's not a coincidence. It's no accident that this is the moment he showed up. I fully believe, and will not be convinced otherwise, that Kaname was definitely lurking about while that confrontation unfolded, waiting for the right moment to swoop in. It's the obvious move. 
Aido wants to menace her, so let him. Let him escalate things until the right moment for Konami to intervene and make himself Yuki's hero once again, further cementing himself as someone that she can rely on. It's literally just the smart play. And so it's Konami who gets the pleasure of smacking Aido across the face. Yuki tries to play the whole thing off as no big deal, but Konami expertly invades her personal space and emotionally endears himself to her. She's all hard-eyed from his compliments and reflecting on how lonely he must be except for her and baby girl. No. Listen to me. Yuki is, what, 15 here? 14, maybe? That makes me just old enough to be her mother, and I'm increasingly feeling the urge to step in here on her behalf. She clearly has no mom, no cool aunt or big sister to help her here. If she did, perhaps she could see Kaname for what he actually is. He's grooming her, he's manipulating her, isolating her, and I just want to jump through the screen so that I can physically steer this poor child away from this predatory man. I don't know precisely how old Kaname is supposed to actually be here, but he does indeed read as a man, not a teenage boy. He looked like a teenage boy in that flashback from the first episode. You know, the one that happened when Yuki herself was five? I refuse to believe that he is less than 10 years older than her. And given that he's a vampire, he could be like 10,000 years older than her for all I know. And while that 10-year age gap is nothing when you're like 55 and 65, it's a whole universe of no when it's 15 and 25 or something like that. I am, at the time of this recording, 28 years old. And believe me when I tell you that most 18-year-olds look like children to me. A 15 or a 14-year-old? That is a literal infant. And you're gonna have to forgive me for a moment if I have to pause and sit in the reality that I genuinely am now old enough to be a teenager's mom. There are former teen moms my age with middle and high schoolers right now, and I have never felt this old before, thank you. But back to the show. Konami's trying to get all territorial, and it is super gross. Yuki got bitten by her sort of brother, and his idea of offering sympathy to her is to tell her that it upsets him that, quote, another bit into the girl he holds very dear. Spare me. This is exactly the shit that I'm talking about. I need a big sis or a cool aunt or someone to pull Yuki to the side and make her understand that that shit ain't cute. But Yuki has other things on her mind, namely her other emotionally abusive brother-boyfriend. She begs Kaname not to have Zero put in the night class, and like I said, Kaname is smart. He knows that it would be a step too far to move Zero in spite of her protests. Moreover, he knows that Zero is a threat to her. And what more effective way to break their bond than to allow Zero's inability to control himself to chip away at her love for him? Just let Zero keep breaking bits off their quasi-sibling bond and shared attraction, and then he can move Zero into the night class once she is on board with the idea. Assuming that he doesn't get some golden opportunity to outright murder Zero before then. Here, though, we get some more interesting world-building. Konami's got some bad news for Yugi, though I'm not yet sure whether or not to believe him. According to Konami, all formerly human vampires eventually devolve into, quote, level E vampires, driven by near-mindless bloodlust. If this is true, it's interesting. Given that I think Zero persists throughout the entirety of this story as Konami's romantic rival, though, I am deeply suspicious that Konami is twisting the truth here or possibly even outright making shit up. I truly don't think Zero is at any risk of devolving into some mindless beast that can't be saved and has to be executed. So either Konami is lying or there's going to be some other solution to this problem. The obvious, of course, would be some way to reverse the transformation outright. That's a well-trodden trope. In Supernatural, vampires can be restored to humanity if they haven't ingested any human blood yet. In Angel, there's a prophecy about an ensouled vampire hero who 
will survive the apocalypse and regain his humanity afterward. Further, the blood of a Mora demon can restore a vampire to humanity in that universe. And in the forgotten show Moonlight, there's a specific compound being kept secret by the vampiric elite that has the power to temporarily turn a vampire back into a human. So maybe this show is going to do something like that. Maybe Zero's conflict over his vampirism and his inevitable descent into an uncontrollable beast will be so easily resolved. I do rather hope that it will be something more complex than that, though. I think I would really enjoy the reveal that Konami's maybe lying here or oversimplifying things for manipulative purposes. If he is telling the truth, though, that's certainly an interesting world-building choice. It does a fairly good job subverting my concerns in the previous episode of coverage. I had mentioned that it seemed that vampires were in trouble in terms of population stability if purebloods are rare and only they can turn people. But if all humans turned into vampires devolve into mindless monsters and are considered by other vampires to not even be true vampires in the first place, then the ability to turn people doesn't really matter at all. It's extraneous, except insofar as it grants the ability to create quick, short-lived armies. If what Konami claims is true, a world with no purebloods, a world in which no one could turn humans, wouldn't necessarily be significantly different from the world of Vampire Knight as it exists right now. Perhaps more importantly, though, it complicates things in another very interesting fashion. The inclusion of the blood pill is a fun little detail that I appreciate. It's kind of a dumber version of true blood, but it's leagues beyond the Twilight and Buffy solutions to the question of ethical vampirism. While the vampires of Twilight and the Buffyverse have apparently never internalized that consent is key, they do not tend to ethically consume blood. Rather, their version of ethical vampirism is so-called quote-unquote vegan vampirism, a lunatic name if ever there was one, and that involves drinking animal blood instead of human blood. I hope I don't have to explain to anyone in the audience why calling that vegan is truly unhinged, and I find it to be a really low-hanging fruit solution to the idea of trying to be non-murderous as a vampire, and trying to drink blood without the inherent rape metaphor of forcibly biting someone. Let me put it this way. There's an episode of Buffy in which the titular character discovers, under terrible circumstances, that there are vampires who are, well, they're not sex workers precisely, they're blood workers, for lack of a better word. They're a sex work metaphor, obviously, but they don't sell sex. Rather, they sell the experience of being fed upon by a vampire, and so they get both blood and money completely consensually. Buffy, of course, discovers this, like I said, under terrible circumstances, and so makes the truly horrific, rather murderous decision to kill all of the vampires involved in this consensual blood work operation. And it unfortunately stands as just about the only time the Buffyverse plays with the notion of consensual blood drinking, which I feel is a shame because it is pretty inherently the right solution. Am I wrong? Out here in the real world, people are into all kinds of wacky shit. If aliens showed up tomorrow and they came out of their spaceships to reveal that they were just writhing masses of tentacles, we would have men and women and non-binary folks lining up left and right for that experience. Vampires are not any different. If 125 years of post-Dracula fallout have taught us anything, it's that plenty of people would love to offer themselves up to vampires like their blood was on tap. There's no reason that drinking blood should be something non-consensual. It's a sex metaphor all the way back to Stoker and Carmilla. For a reason. Consent is key, my darlings. Consent is key. But Vampire Knight... The story has done something interesting to that notion. In most stories, turning is, as Buffy put it, a whole sucking thing. It's usually an exchange of blood, or else it's a near-death experience. Maybe both. 
It doesn't tend to be that anyone who gets touched by a vampire's fangs automatically transforms into a vampire themselves, but in Vampire Night, that does seem to be the case when it comes to purebloods. They bite you, and you either die or you change. Not so, though, for the normal vampires. Which means that normal vampires are the only ones in the Vampire Night universe who can ethically drink blood. For purebloods, they can't drink directly from a human without either turning that human into an eventually mindless monster, or draining the human dry and killing them. There is no ethical blood consumption, as far as I understand it, for pureblood vampires. And that's fascinating. That's the launching pad for a vampire story right there. And here, here it's just an implication. Not even an afterthought. Just an implication. Just like Twilight, or so its casual fans assure me, I fear that Vampire Knight might be focusing on the single least interesting aspect of its universe. Who cares about a love story when there's all this interesting shit happening in the periphery? But I suppose we'd best get back to the plot. Kane drops a little tidbit of character backstory right on the heels of the world-building that Konami offered us. Not only is Zero going to turn into a level E vampire eventually, he's also the progeny of a line of vampire hunters, which certainly explains why his family was targeted by a pureblood in the first place. Speaking of Zero, though, he's having some trouble adjusting, to put it mildly. When Yugi walks into his bedroom to check on him, she finds him pointing his bloody rose gun at his own temple. She springs into action to try to save him, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this scene. Yet? In a minute, though, things get truly dark. Darker even than the obvious surface level of Zero wants to kill himself. Because it's not just that Zero wants to kill himself. Zero pins Yuki to the bed and tries to force Yuki to shoot him, telling her that he wants her to be the one who kills him. So, um, here's the thing. This is the definition of relationship abuse. I don't care that their relationship is technically still in friends or step-siblings territory right now. Pinning someone down, pressing a gun into their hands, pointing it at your body, and telling them that you want them to be the one who kills you, as if it's this big, meaningful, romantic, or at least romanticized gesture, is an inherently abusive act. Every step of the way. Threats of suicide are literally one of the criteria on the standard am I in an abusive relationship checklist, and while Zero is certainly not making manipulative threats here, what he is doing here is fundamentally traumatizing. He's traumatizing Yuki, not remotely thinking of her emotional well-being, and it certainly does nothing to endear him to me. Honestly, I don't want Yuki anywhere near either one of these guys. Were she really my child, we'd be moving clear across the country right now to get away from these dudes. Everything that both Zero and Kaname are pulling is far beyond the pale. Though I do find a certain perverse amusement in the idea of shipping these two jackasses together. The fallout of having these two particular personalities trying to navigate like a soulmate AU or something, while still retaining their in-canon emotionally abusive manipulative tendencies, the potential fun there is infinite. But Zero just won't quit. With Yuki pinned to the mattress while he straddles her, gun in hand, he strokes the spot where he bit her neck and talks about how he couldn't stop himself from drinking from her, and will probably end up killing whoever he attacks next. And even if he weren't smiling in this scene, I would still be standing in the background screaming, bad touch, bad touch, someone get my rape whistle. This is unhinged behavior, and this little girl needs desperately to be rescued. And when Yuki refuses to kill the boy that is essentially her brother, 
Zero abandons her and tells her to stay away from him from now on. In other words, he's leaving you if you don't do what he says. Yeah, no, that's not abuser talk at all. Get the fuck out of here. But Yuki, idiot child that she is, runs after him and hugs him and has a flashback to being a little girl and stumbling across him self-harming. So I'm glad the show clarified that he's been doing this to her for years. That really makes it better. Also, Cayenne, what's the fucking point of adopting traumatized children if you don't intend to ever, you know, get them therapy for their trauma? Someone please call CPS on this specky bitch before it's too late. Speaking of the man in question, though, he's meeting with someone from the Vampire Hunting Society, or whatever it's called. Now, this person doesn't get a name, and their gender is a complete mystery to me. They read as very feminine, but they have a masculine voice, and as far as I've noticed, they're not referenced with any set of pronouns within the dialogue, so I'm kind of at a loss on how to refer to them. I'm just going with they-them until I have a better idea of what is up with this particular character. Anyway, this character, as I said, is a vampire hunter and somehow involved with Cross Academy. In their meeting with Cayenne, they ask after Zero, and while Cayenne assures them that Zero is perfectly fine, thank you very much, they decide to send a hunter to the school anyway. It will be up to this hunter, then, whether Zero will live or die. Zero, I think, would rather prefer the latter, but given how much I can't stand this new cowboy vampire hunter character, I think I would prefer Zero just ate him instead. But now we're on to the next episode. Our title is Moonlight Festivities, and, um, sure, whatever. But it opens on a very fun note. Yuki is being given the vampire equivalent of Inuyasha's Beads of Subjugation. It's a spell cast upon a bracelet with a drop of Zero's blood to, quote, tame him, and, well, this love story finally has a bit of my interest. It's no collar around his neck, but it's a nice first step. Except I have to take that back, because the other half of this love story is a 15-year-old girl, and again, that is literally an infant. There's no such thing as a love story involving a 15-year-old. Gross. Grosser, though, is the bizarre moment in which a blushing Cayenne offers his neck to zero with the words, My blood is all yours, and do not do that to me again. I never want to see that kind of a joke in this story again. I will put up with the brother-sister shit, but I draw the line when it comes to parents and their kids. No jokes, no subtext, nothing. I make allowances for villainous characters, sure, but I draw the line at heroes and protagonists getting anywhere, anywhere near that shit. Absolutely not. So... The next day, Yuki and Yori show up to find their class all abuzz over the arrival of a hot new teacher. He's some long-haired pretty boy, except that he's missing an eye, and that Zero is stunned to see him. And the clusterfuck that ensues when this class is allowed to ask this guy questions. May the gods help us all. These little girls are all, do you date younger women, and yo, what's wrong with your face? And I just desperately need someone to throw each and every one of these children into detention and attempt to teach them what is and is not an appropriate thing to say to a grown fucking man. No, he doesn't date younger women, and you at 15 are not anything resembling a woman. You are a child. Do your homework. Zero bails on the class, unsurprisingly, and Yuki follows him. Cayenne ends up sending them on an errand into town, and they stop at a cafe to eat. The waitress, though, clocks Zero as a vampire, though she doesn't actually register his vampirism, just that he's hot as fuck. And when she starts gushing over Ido, Zero just bails on her, and I don't blame him, but he's in a funk because he interprets her interest in him as her smelling that he's a vampire now, and, um, 
if you say so. I mean, I don't go around smelling people, but, um, sure. You smell like a vampire now, I guess. That's fine. And because she is Bella Swan levels of irresistible to vampires, apparently, Yuki immediately attracts another vampire upon being left alone for more than 30 seconds. Some dork in a trench coat flings himself at her, looking for a good bite, and Zero has to come to her rescue. Don't just stand there, indeed. I'm glad someone else finally said it. He uses Yuki's stick to bash the vampire away from her, but he says that the stick, which he calls the Artemis Rod, doesn't like him to use it. And like, yeah, it's called the Artemis Rod. It inherently is not for you to use, my very male vampire friend. But when the vampire gets back up off the ground, Yuki simply collapses. I repeat, this girl is useless. These are fighting words, but I'm gonna say them. Bella Swan was leagues tougher, braver, and smarter than this, and we gave that damn character all the shit in the world for being pathetic. So, before Zero can take out the vampire, though, someone else beats him to it. It's the other blonde vampire from the night class, the green-eyed one, and he invites Zero and Yuki to come to the moon dormitory that night if they want answers on why he and his red-headed friend intervened. In spite of the advice that I would have offered, which would have been, hell no, why would you ever do that? Yuki and Zero both head over to the moon dorm after the sun has gone down. The place is inexplicably crowded, and the reason proves hilarious. This isn't some kind of a setup or anything like that. This is literally the blonde guy's birthday party. They do press him for answers, of course, and they get them. He tells them that level E vampires are mindless monsters at the very bottom of vampire hierarchy, and that higher level vampires hate them and kill them. Cue Konami interrupting. He scolds Yuki for coming here, and I don't believe for a moment that he isn't the reason she's here in the first place. I am very willing to bet that he told Blondie to invite her here in the first place. Because he certainly leverages the opportunity, he tells Yuki that the only safe place at this party is right beside him, tucked under his arm and pressed up against his chest, and this little bastard has absolutely got shit figured out, hasn't he? I am increasingly sure that I hate him because his next move is to remove Yuki's bandage without her consent and press his mouth to her wounds, again, without her consent, to, like, use his vampire spit to heal them or something. And while I'm not truly averse to the trope, the whole supernatural person has healing saliva thing shows up more often than you think, and I don't inherently hate it. It's just that I hate how Kaname is using it here. There's no getting around that it's a kiss that Yuki didn't ask for or agree to, and yet it exists in this nebulous space of plausible deniability. If he gets called on this, he can just brush this off as not a kiss and a cross-species misunderstanding or whatever. But Zero is not willing to let it slide, thank goodness. He points the anti-vampire gun right at Kaname with no hesitation, even though it turns everyone at the party immediately against him. Ido promises to get revenge someday because how dare Zero treat a pureblood vampire with such disrespect? And Yuki, the world's slowest on the uptake ordinary high school girl, finally realizes that Kaname is a pureblood. He is as surprised as I am to see that she did not know this. And I just... I really don't like Yuki. She's just so nothing. I'm gonna catch a ton of shit for this, I'm sure but I really don't see how anyone could argue that she's a better character than Bella Swan. They're pretty equally nothing. 
Honestly, I would genuinely argue that Bella has more character. As the party goes on, Shiki and Ichijo are trying to cut the cake when Shiki accidentally cuts Ichijo's finger and licks up the blood. It is super gay, undeniably so, and Ichijo uses the opportunity to get in a really good line about how he hadn't actually intended to serve himself as dessert, and while I don't really get the point of this scene, I enjoyed it. Zero, though, definitely did not. He runs off, presumably because of the blood, and when Yuki tries to run after him, Ido grabs her and asks for a dance. He sulks when she refuses, and like I said before, I would love to know his motivation here. But Zero is busy going through something. According to Shiki, there are vampires out there who cannot, for whatever reason, drink blood tablets as a replacement for real blood. Why, I don't know, and I would love to. But the show is not presently interested in answering that question for me. Whatever the reason, it seems that Zero cannot survive on blood tablets. He needs blood, and so it's really not a good idea for Yuki to be chasing his ass down right now. I don't trust her to have the brain power to use her little Tame the Vampire spell, after all. She is incredibly dumb. So of course, Zero goes to bite her, and Yuki's idea of stopping him is to throw both of them into the pool behind them. And then there's the vampire hunter, what's-his-name, coming in out of nowhere. He shoots Zero point-blank in the shoulder, making it very clear that he could have easily killed him in this moment, but chose not to for some reason. Presumably because these two are now revealed to actually know each other. Very well, in fact. Zero used to be this guy's protege before he got bitten and dumped at Cross Academy. Meeting and saving Zero was actually the reason this guy lost his eye, as a matter of fact. He was the one who started Zero's anti-vampire indoctrination. And now, he plans to be the one to end Zero's vampiric existence. Not if Yuki has anything to say about it, though. She puts herself physically between Zero and Yugari's gun, until Zero moves away from her, accepting his fate. And then Cayenne comes to the rescue. Cayenne isn't going to let Yugari kill anyone without reason. Though here's hoping Yagari doesn't actually try to call him on that, because I'm having a hard time picturing Cayenne truly standing up to or fighting anyone. But who knows, maybe he's going to turn out to be some kind of a secret badass in the future. Either way, the next episode. The next day, Zero is nowhere to be found. Yuki confronts Yagari, who reveals that Zero has been, quote, put into isolation, and that Yagari has been tasked with teaching ethics to the night class. I feel so terribly robbed that we don't get to actually see this, because I cannot imagine what he would possibly be trying to teach them. Kaname gets a drive-by appearance here, passing Yuki in the hall and dropping a shitty line about how he hasn't seen Zero for a while and maybe she'd better reconsider letting him into the night class. I'm honestly kind of hoping to see this guy get decked at some point in this show, because my if he isn't a smug little bastard. But if someone is going to punch him, I don't want it to be Yugari. I don't like Kaname, sure, but I have very little fondness for vampire hunter characters in general, and I think I hate this one in particular. So after the night class finishes up, Yuki finally gets her answer on where Zero is, and she goes to find him. Zero tells this psalm story from his childhood, talking about a teacher who was secretly a vampire and ended up degrading to a level E. She attacked him and his brother, and when Yugari came to their rescue, Zero tried to save her life, which cost Yugari his eye. It goes a long way toward humanizing Zero, but not Yugari. He was an idealistic kid, not so inclined to immediately hate anyone who happens to be a vampire, and it's clear that the deaths of his family merely cemented the hateful lessons that Yugari started teaching him while they were still alive. And now, because Yugari says that Zero must die, 
Zero is willing to accept that. But Yuki isn't having it. She takes him into the privacy of the shower stall and offers her neck to him, and I repeat once more, I demand that a mother, aunt, or sister character saves this idiot girl. Like, I will forever continue to argue for consensual blood donation in vampire stories. But this shit ain't it. She is not old enough to consent to sex, and blood drinking is a sex metaphor for a reason. Ergo, she is not old enough to consent to blood donation. More importantly, though, is that there is the ongoing question of whether Zero is even physically capable of drinking from her without killing her. The last time he drank from her, he specifically told her that he would likely kill the next person he fed off. And here she is, just offering herself up as his dinner like she's a roast fucking turkey. She is stupid, and Zero cannot resist. Luckily for her, he doesn't take very much. He's ashamed of himself, which is probably why he manages to stop before she even gets lightheaded, despite the fact that he already drank from her just two or three days before. He begs her to give up on him and just let him die, and I have much more sympathy for this than for the shit he pulled earlier with the gun. Yuki tells him that she'll never give up on him, not even if he truly descends into a bloodthirsty madman, and then they go their separate ways. And Kaname somehow, knows what's just happened. He goes to confront her while Yuki reflects on how sinful and unforgivable it is for a human to allow a vampire to drink from them, and get the fuck out of here with that nonsense. This is a perfect metaphor for abstinence-only anti-sex Puritan ideals. Just say no bullshit that's offensive to anyone with more than half a brain cell. There is nothing wrong with consensual, safe sex, and I know I keep harping on how vampire bites are a metaphor for sex, but that's because they're a perfect metaphor. Just as there's nothing wrong with safe and consensual sex, there's nothing wrong with safe and consensual blood drinking. The idea that either would be an inherently unforgivable sin makes me want to go out and burn down a church. But back to Konami. Once again, he's touching Yuki without even asking, let alone getting permission. And he's obviously trying to get her to admit to what he already knows, that she committed the so-called sin of allowing Zero, or any man beside Kaname himself, to drink from her. He gives her a hug and tells her that he wishes she would open up to him, and it's so obviously manipulative that it makes my skin crawl. Yuki just walks away, though, and Kaname is left to be confronted by Yagari. Yagari taunts him about what Yuki and Zero have clearly been getting up to in secret, and I'm not gonna lie, I love the little moment of Kaname putting out Yagari's cigarette with his vampire powers or whatever. That shit is useful. I'd keep him around just for the thrill of pulling that trick on somebody once in a while. Oh, you're smoking out here in public? Not anymore, you aren't. But Kaname makes his motivations and calculations pretty clear here. Yagari asks why Kaname doesn't just tear Zero apart for crossing him, and Kaname answers that it's just so he can be sure he won't lose Yuki. Like I said, calculation. Kaname is a lot of things, but he's clearly no idiot. The next day, neither Zero nor Yagari shows up for class. Yuki, upon realizing that they're both missing, rushes to save Zero from his former mentor. And Yagari shames the absolute shit out of Zero, going on about how he's spoiled and shameful and trying to take the easy way out. It's vile, and while I don't love Zero, I would be more than happy to punch this jackass in the nuts on his behalf. Everything spewing from Yagari's mouth in this scene is just downright evil, and I have no words for the notion that this guy could possibly be anything resembling a hero disgusting. He leaves with some final words to them both. 
Zero is advised to struggle for the rest of his awful life, and Yuki is told that Zero is her problem now. Have I mentioned that I hate this guy? He literally calls her little girl, and then effectively says, lol, this soon-to-be murderous vampire whose death will psychologically destroy you is entirely your burden to carry, have fun, on his way out. I hope it doesn't need to be said that dumping that kind of shit on a child is scum of the earth shit. Some fucking vampire hunter this dude turned out to be. But he's not done with the zingers. Just before he walks away, he tells Zero that, quote, that woman is still alive, and if he doesn't mean the vampire who took his eye, then I have no idea who he's talking about. I would say that I'm looking forward to finding out, but to be honest, I'm not looking forward to anything involving Yukari unless he's going to be dying sometime soon. At this point in the story, I really cannot stand him, so I hope he's not a fan-favorite character or anything like that, but that does tend to be my luck. So, our final note of the episode is Yuki and Zero having a little moment before they part ways, and it's way more brother and sister than it is love interests. And Yuki tells him that she doesn't regret a thing. Cue still doll. So I've gotta admit, Yagari's presence in the show has kind of put a hint of a damper on how much fun I'm having. I don't enjoy a vampire hunter pretty much ever. Vampire slayers in the Buffyverse are a fun subversion of the trope, especially when it comes to slayers like Buffy herself and Faith. And Supernatural has the occasional sympathetic hunter, chief among which is Sam Winchester himself. But introducing vampire hunters into this story, it gives me some pause when it comes to how much I expect to enjoy the story and how it's going to unfold. It brings us into more concrete humans versus vampires territory, and while I don't love the idea of putting myself into the same basket as anyone as nutty as Cayenne Cross, peaceful coexistence should be the goal here, no? But introducing vampire hunters complicates things to the point that I worry peaceful coexistence is not this show's end goal. And if it's not coexistence, then what is it? Genocide and extinction of the vampire species? Pushing them further into the shadows of feigned non-existence? Taming them like Yuki is supposed to be able to tame Zero? Or something even more sinister than that? I guess I'm asking, where do we go from here? So like I said, I'm still finding the show very charming. I'm really enjoying the world building, I'm really enjoying how everything is unfolding so far, I'm not loving the problematic nature of the relationships, I'm not loving that it's focused around a love story, I'm not loving the introduction, like I said, of Yagari, but none of those flaws so far are especially detracting from the show for me. There are things that I don't like about this so far, and I wish those things could be replaced by more interesting things, but they're not detracting yet. I'm honestly even a bit charmed by this awful, super problematic love triangle. I can't help realizing how much I would have enjoyed it if I had read it when I was still a member of the target demographic. If I had read this manga when it was coming out, as I keep saying, I would have adored it. This would have been my world for like a good year or two in middle school. In that era, when I was obsessed with Tokyo Mew Mew, so too would I have been obsessed with this story. It's even possible that this story might have replaced Tokyo Mew Mew for me entirely, and who the hell would I have become? come then. As shameful as it is to admit, Tokyo Mew Mew was a pretty fundamental building block for my personality. I lived and breathed that manga and its anime's awful dub for like two or three years at least, and it shaped so much of my own creativity because I was obsessed with it at just the right time. You can still see faint echoes of that story in my work today. I loved that shit. It inspired me. It shaped my creativity. 
and it could easily have been superseded by Vampire Night if I had only found this story instead of that one. I would have loved this shit at that age, just as so many of my fellow young millennial Harry Potter obsessives did. But that's speculation for another day. Right now, as I record this, I'm about to sit down and film my reaction videos for the next three episodes. If you're interested in watching those reaction videos, they are available immediately after filming to $10 patrons and available to $5 patrons on a weekly release schedule. Additionally, $1 and up patrons get access to polls designed to help me decide what it is that I will be watching next. Current options on the polls include movies and films available via Netflix and HBO, but I am willing to open myself up to other streaming services in the future as the Patreon grows. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would appreciate if you could leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice, talk about the show on social media, or recommend it to a friend. Every little bit helps and is incredibly appreciated. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will join me again next week for the next batch of Vampire Night episodes. That should be nothing more than a predator play. play. Predator play. I'm sure that's a thing. <laughs>